Yeah. All right. Well, do you want to count down or do you just want yeah, to count down? All right. Five, okay. four, three, two. Hello and welcome to Thinking Religion. I'm Thomas Whitley. And I'm Sam Harrelson. Um, where do you want to start? We want to start with some FU today. Let's, let's do some FU, Thomas. Um, I think we're both in the sure. mood for some FU. <laughs> After our pre-show. <sighs> uh, we got we got to start taping the pre-shows and just putting those out as as you know their own standalone shows i don't know well after we finish our conversation today maybe um <laughs> listeners will be a little bit more aware of why we don't do that <laughs> right it had to be not just explicit but also please don't listen to this if you you know are, are hiring people for jobs <laughs> right yeah <laughs> um so yeah a few uh friend of the show wrote in a couple of weeks ago and we, we just haven't had time to get to it on the show and she uh, wanted to know um, if um, I can't find the original question here in my email, but she, she asked basically, and I'm paraphrasing, so I apologize to you. You know who you are. Thank you for listening to the show. Uh, she asked if uh, you she, she was trying to figure out if you're confessional or not. And I know it's a personal question. We don't have to go into that. But she wanted to know why, uh, if you were interested in just doing the academic side of religious studies, why you went to divinity school. And if you ever uh, planned on uh, doing ordination or if that was something that was just like a necessary step because she is not in the religious studies field. Um, and she just thinks that's interesting that people who want to go on to academic work sometimes have to go through the Masters of Divinity program with all the other preachers, basically. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought it was kind of an interesting question. That is a good question. It's one that... It's one that I get. And sorry, I, I said interesting. I am. I'm not going to say interesting super anymore. Interesting. I mean, it's one of the most interesting, interesting <laughs> you know, questions about our interests that we've gotten lately. Um, sorry. sorry. <laughs> We're jerks. I know. Um, yeah. Well, so normally the question that I get is not about my MDiv, but rather just in general, like, hey, you're doing a PhD in religion. Are you going to go work for a church? Um, because most people think if you study religion that you are religious, um, which it's kind of funny because on the other hand, we have this kind of dominant narrative in this country that like all professors and particularly religion professors are like atheists out to destroy religion. So it's kind of funny, like seeing those two juxtaposed. Um, and it's often, it's also why I don't, when I travel, I don't often tell people what I do. Right. Um, you know, sometimes I'll say like, Oh, I'm a historian <laughs> because that's just a lot easier. Yeah, no, you, you know what you need but, to say? You should you should say, well, I, I'm mostly a historian, you know, just throw yeah. in the mostly tag. And that really helps. So when people ask what I do, I say, well, I, do, I mostly do business and marketing yeah. consulting. And they're like, oh, OK. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Because, you know, inevitably, if you tell somebody that you study religion, then it's, well, you know, my aunt's pastor said this. And I'm like, honestly, I do not <laughs> right. care. Like, I'm sure you're a great person. <laughs> I do not care at all. Um, so. Yeah. Okay. What's the best way to answer this? Um, so I did spend some time working uh, in churches, uh, close to a decade, actually, and just got to a point where I knew it wasn't for me anymore. Um, so that was why I initially went to divinity school and did that. I also did an MA and then went on to do this, the PhD that I'm finishing uh, in less than a month now. Um, but I will say because of what I do, and I'll apologize for the dog's uh, in the background, but, um, what I do, I do, 
um, early Christianity, what some people might call biblical studies or something like that. Um, a lot of people end up going to div school that are not particularly confessional or religious because that's a lot of the programs are still designed that way, uh, which has, you know, says a lot about the um, relationship that Protestantism has to higher education in this country and particularly to religious education in this country and education about religion in this country, uh, which is, you know, a really interesting conversation for another day, I think. But um, I, I am a member of a church. I'll put it that way. Um, I don't really like confessional as a term. And also, if you've listened to the show long enough, you probably realize that um, it's hard for me to apply categories and labels because I, or at least I resist that a little bit because I understand the kind of sociological and rhetorical work that they do. And so I try not to allow that work to be done to me if I can help it. <laughs> so if that makes sense. <laughs> right. So if, if I were 21 and I was, well, if I were 19 and I was deciding between a chemistry major and a religion major or religious studies major, um, and, and you knew me when I was 19 and, and you said, oh, well, what do you want to do with that? And I said, well, you know, I'm thinking about going into the academy. I mean, first yes. of all, you would say, run away, please, God, run to the chemistry yes. department and sign up immediately. <laughs> Yay, STEM, um, if, if you ever want to have a job. But but second, <clears throat> I mean, how, how would you advise me on my career in terms of, OK, do I need to go to, to divinity school? Like, yeah, I'm, I'm quasi-religious, whatever. I don't really... You know, I'm not going to be a minister, um, but I, I do want to pursue a PhD. So is it better that I go through um, and get an MDiv or should yeah, I, I do think something it, like it really an MAR? Depends. Yeah, uh, I think it really depends on each person's particular interests um, and the type of div school or seminary that you might end up at. Like you can go to Harvard or Princeton Div, one of those two. And yes, they're divinity schools, and yes, they are confessional, but they are not confessional the way that you would think most of school and uh, seminaries are. Um, yeah, even right. like a Gardner Webb is. I mean, uh, you know, I went to Yale Divinity, and then I went to Gardner Webb Divinity, and Gardner Webb yeah. was like you yeah, know, but that's, but that's but that's um, an important I mean, I thing. That maybe a lot of people <laughs> but, you know, compared don't to Yale. is that there, even within the kind of the div school seminary, you know, realm, there are significant differences, uh, and some are more focused on students who want to do the academic track and. But most of them are more focused on students that want to do the ministry track. So that's something to think about. And also, the, you know, to think about where you think you might want to end up. So if you think you might want to end up teaching at a divinity school or seminary or possibly a, a religious undergraduate institution, then in, in some cases, a divinity degree would be helpful. Um, but That's a good point. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're kind of limiting your options, right? When you say, I don't. I don't want to teach at a seminary, so I'm going to get a master's of religious studies or, or yes, a master's I mean, of arts degree, and religion. Yes, I mean, to a degree, but there's also... Um, you know, after college. There may there are a lot of other factors that will also limit that where that might not matter. So, for instance, one of the factors that limits where I've been applying for jobs is that um, regardless of the school and what, they, what their affiliation is or anything, I will not sign a statement of faith, regardless of what it says. Um, for what I think are principles of academic freedom and academic integrity, I just will not sign one. Doesn't matter if I happen to agree with it or not. No. Did you sign one at uh, Gardner no. Webb? Um, 
And so I just won't do that. And that is a, a limit that I recognize I put on myself. But I also recognize that a lot of these places, I would run afoul of such a such an agreement within probably the first two classes. Um, because I, I'm, I'm just not going to limit what I do in the classroom based on other people's understandings of, you know, how they think other people should conceive of God or something like that. I'm just not going to. Uh, I And I think that, and I'm, and a lot of people will disagree with me, but I am 100% convinced that mandatory statements of faith cannot coexist with true academic freedom. And so I just won't sign a statement like that. So that's a necessary limitation I put on myself. So having an MDiv, but then also having that limitation for what I think are integrity reasons, um, limits pretty significantly the the number and type of places that I can apply. But if you're not really religious and you don't think that you would ever end up in a religious institution or that even if you might be interested in it, there are things in your background that you're pretty sure would preclude them from considering you, then you're probably not missing out doing an MAR. And there's, you know, you also have to think about your time uh, because if you go to div school or seminary, you're looking at a three-year degree. If you're go to, you know, do an MA, you're looking at usually a two-year degree. Uh, so there's a time difference there. A number of people in, end up doing multiple master's degrees, which I think is ridiculous, but I have multiple master's degrees. Um, a number of people that get an MDiv and then decide they want to do a PhD, go on and do like a one-year MTS or, a, you know, another MA or something like that to bone up their kind of academic credentials to get into PhD programs. Um and at the end of the day, time is valuable. And because most PhD programs you're looking at, you know, five years or so. Um, and so if you're thinking three years div school and then five years, you know, PhD program, that's eight years. And then where are you going to be afterward? And you should go into it knowing that there is absolutely zero guarantee that you get a job. And in fact, the likelihood is that you do not get an academic job. And yeah. And if you know all that and you still want to do it, then that's fine. Then you should do it. But that's another thing to think about is, you know, where do you want to be um, and what are you trying to get out of it? So, I mean, yeah, those are those are good questions. Yeah, that's that's I'm going to come back to the job thing. I'm sorry. My my great Dane just came in and put his head on my desk and started licking the microphone. It's the day of the dogs. Um, I opened the back door. It's a beautiful cloudy day here in humid Columbia. Um, <clears throat> okay. That's interesting. I like that. So we have a whole other set of questions that I'm, we're going to save. So if you, if you've sent in questions recently, we're going to, we're going to get to those, but I, we kind of need to move on. Cause I think um, what you've raised here has interesting implications for some other stuff that I want to circle back to. Uh, but, but if you do have questions out there, or if you hear us talk about things, <laughs> Uh, you know, please email or, or, you know, find us on Twitter um, and, and ask those questions because, you know, we, I, I view podcasting as an interactive medium and I'm going to circle back to that too. It circles within circles. And, uh, you know, I, I, I find it personally, you know, fascinating when, when people send in questions either, you know, from a confessional point of view or from an academic point of view. And I know we have lots of listeners who are, you know, practicing Christians or, or, you know, practicing Muslims, uh, but also people who are from the academy or people who are atheists or people who are agnostic. 
And if you do have those questions, whether it's, you know, about angels or, or something, you know, kind of about the political stuff we do or something about something, uh, you know, that, that Thomas and I raise in terms of this, you know, philosophical type of, of stuff, you know, don't, don't hesitate to, to reach out because that makes doing this really worth it. I mean, we don't get paid to do this and, uh, you know, right. So, uh, you know, someone who runs a small business and, you know, has to take two, three, four hours out of the, out of the data to work on this. It means a lot when you, when you write in. So, um, you don't have to go to iTunes and give us five stars. You don't have to tell your friends and family, but you know, please contribute your, your questions and your insights. All right. So that, that being said on, on Twitter this week, um, one of the people I follow, uh, who's, uh, runs a, another podcast network called five by five is named Dan, uh, Dan Benjamin. And he's down in Austin and they mostly do tech podcast and kind of cultural podcast, but it, it's a great little network or big network over there. So go check them out. But Dan also um, has a thing called Podcast Method, which I think he did a Kickstarter for or, or Patreon or something. Yeah, I, it was Patreon. But basically, he, he deconstructs how he does podcasting, and he's very professional about it. So this is you know, what he does for a living. So he's got a studio, and he's got all the cool equipment and computers and mics and cables and all that stuff. And he really kind of breaks down and tells you how to do a podcast if you want to do a podcast. Um, and you have the, the means to afford <laughs> such things. Uh, and it's really fascinating. So he was taking questions this week, and we sent in one about um, you know how he records his podcast, whether it's Skype or, or what we're using now, Zencaster or some other type of um, solution. And evidently, that's going to be on the show today, and he's going to mention us. So I just want to give a brief shout-out as we before we transition to the main topic. Um, go listen to podcast method. If, if you're interested in, in kind of that, you know, looking down your own nose type idea of, of you know, podcast about podcast, uh, which I am, I, you know, I think it's really interesting. And, uh, <laughs> also in the show notes, um, yeah. And yeah, there's a new Evernote. Be, yeah. We, we, so we talk about Evernote, Evernote a lot. We do, um, have a, and you're on a Mac and you're not Thomas. Yeah. We have a love hate relationship. It's mostly love, but, we have, we've been frustrated lately, but we ho- we hope they're moving in the right direction. We think they are. So we'll, we're still watching that. But yeah, new Evernote for Mac uh, just got released. So. Anyway, I know a couple of our listeners really take the Evernote stuff. I keep trying to use it. And that was my, one of my New Year's resolutions is, you know, is to really pour myself into Evernote. But, you know, you can't beat the good old Field Notes notebook and uh, a good fountain pen. So I'm really into fountain pens now. That's my new, my new obsession. I'm... I'm stocking up i've got four now and uh i've got this german one that's awesome but then i've got this other one from pilot you know you know like the you know quote cheap pilot company but it's like a 15 dollar fountain pen which is on the low end of course but it writes so well and uh man i'm, I'm really really enjoying that so if you're into fountain pens let me know give me a good suggestion i know uh what's the other one i have Laurie or something. Anyway, um, what else? What else you want to talk about? You want to do a sponsor? We'd like to thank Kim Kardashian this week for uh, sponsoring the show and uh, her friends. <laughs> and uh, yeah, go to go to uh, download Kim Kardashian uh, emoji and and use the offer code Thinking FM. Um, I don't know what direction do you want to go. Do you want to? Do you want to talk more about the work stuff? Do you want to talk about email? Do you want to talk about uh, 
Francis? Um, well, let's mention the Francis thing real quick, and then let's talk about the work stuff. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. So the Francis thing, we've talked about Francis, Pope Francis um, uh, a little bit on the show. You know, ebbs and flows. He's been out of the news lately, so we've not been focusing on him as much. Um, but if you'll recall, there have been uh, two, um, you know, synods, 2014, 2015, uh, big deal in 2015, sitting on the family, a lot of stuff that's going on there, um, or that was going on there, a lot of kind of interesting power plays between a lot of kind of the African contingent and the American Western European contingent, uh, differences they had and kind of what appeared to be some softening of stances on, um, divorced Catholics. And so all of this is kind of culminating in a document that Francis is, has written that's going to be released on April 8th, and it's called um, The Joy of Life, if I remember correctly. Um, and so it's going to be released on April 8th. So we're going to be, we're just to you know, re- keep remind you of that, keep that kind of in the back of your mind. We'll be talking about that when it comes out. It's reported to be about 200 pages, so we will at least skim it. We'll probably read it, but, um, you know, so that you don't have to. That's what we're here for. Uh, And tell you the kind of interesting and important and interesting uh, aspects of it. Um, So, you know, think about that. It's We don't really expect it to be kind of like bombshell, like major breaking news or anything. but there are probably going to be some things in there that are controversial within the church, within the Catholic church, and that actually have maybe more significant impact on kind of the interaction between lay Catholics and their priests than um, a lot of people might expect. So so that's what we're looking for. So just kind of, it's on the horizon and it's going to be released next week. Uh, so we'll be might not get to talk about it next week, but hopefully the week after that, we'll have had a chance to look at it and, and talk about it and give you some highlights and kind of discuss what we think the implications might be. So, yeah, that's going to be interesting. Um, it kind of gets back to that ever evolving meta conversation we have on this podcast about the way things are changing or the, mm-hmm. the way thing sort of mainstream things are changing, I guess. Um, you know, whether it's, it's having this conversation about, um, you know, the North Carolina HB2 bill, you know, which yeah. discriminates against, you know, transgender and, and LBGTQ people or folks who identify as such. Um, and, and how these conversations, I, I would have never imagined them happening 10 years ago. Um, I mean, last night at church, we, it was my wife's last day at that church. So we're, she's moving on to uh, another, another venture, which we'll talk about maybe next week. Um, but we were having a conversation about transitions and, and identity and that kind of thing and, and who Emmanuel is as a church. And, and one of the things we covered was, you know, whether we're moderate or progressive or conservative or, you know, what kind of label can we put on that? Cause we were making, you know, things like little handout cards. So when people come visit or if they want more information or even stuff on the website and we kept coming back to, um, this, this conversation of, well, are we moderate? Or are we progressive? Because we have both in our congregation, and you know it, it was a it was a delicate situation there. So you know I was kind of basically from my own point of view threw in the idea that those labels are political labels, mm-hmm. and maybe there's a way to say that without saying 
or, or, or to try to put that out there that, you know, we're a congregation that's, I guess you would say open and affirming. Right. Right. Uh, but, but even that has a certain, you know, sort of catchphrase to it mm-hmm. um, or religious liberty. So we were going through those terms that have identities, identities, because people were saying, oh, open and affirming. That's great. You know, that, that sounds just like us. And then someone said, well, you know, that means that, you know, we accept gay people. And someone said, no, it doesn't. It just means we're, you know, we have open doors and we're right. affirming of everyone. And they're like, no, no, that's political speak. Yes, exactly. And a lot of progressive churches, it's open or welcome and affirming. And that's, that's right. the code for, yeah, gay people are welcome here. Uh, yeah, that's right. right. So, so we had the conversation about, um, you know, just as a church, like we need to sit down one Wednesday night and because I'm still a member there and I'm, I'm going to be doing Sunday school there for a little while. We need to sit down and have the conversation about things like religious liberty and what that means mm-hmm. or, you know, what people perceive that to mean or open and affirming or progressive or when you say that you're in the CBF or the Alliance or the SBC and how these identifications even though they're relative, they also have, you know, imported meaning from the culture in, in some way. And there's constantly, uh, you know, like so, we talk about on the show all the time, right? There's constantly um, challenges to get to determine that meaning too. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So uh, it's going to be a fun thing. I'm, I'm, I'm doing that through the marketing agency, I hope. And I want to uh, kind of be a little more, not that I can be objective, but, you know, be a little more objective about it when we, when we have that session, because I think it's going to be really exciting but i would i don't know i i think that would be an, a hell of a podcast <laughs> yeah just you know record stick the, that stick the blue snowball microphone in the middle and just <laughs> right which is what we do for service uh so with the catholic church i mean i think some of that's also going on you know where francis you know pope francis isn't necessarily saying you know yes we're open and affirming but he's throwing out keywords or buzzwords at some points, or he's making overtures to people who, you know, would be traditionally put off by the Catholic church. So, you know, he's washing the feet of Muslim uh, immigrants from, from Syria. And, you know, he's saying we're brothers, which is a political statement in a way, you know, yeah, it's religious and that's great. You know, yay, Jesus loves everybody, but also, wow. You know, the Pope washed the feet of a, a Muslim, uh, you know, Syrian, uh, male and and that's those overtures and that language that that Francis and Francis's people keep throwing out there is, is really yes. interesting to observe. Um, you know, so so you have Al Mohler on the other hand, who in his podcast this week was talking about North Carolina and, and um, you know the, the limits of freedom and religious liberty and those things, and basically he calls out the CBF as well, which is fascinating because the CBF goes so far to try to distance itself from any controversy, including things, you know, have to, having to do with gender and uh, sexual identification because they don't want to offend anyone. Um, sorry. And the notion that I think Moeller was throwing out there was, uh, you know, the liberals have caused this and they, they brought this upon themselves because they're trying to push against, you know, values we were founded on and, if they would just be quiet and shut up, then they could do this and they could have their, you know, their liberties, but they're trying to, you know, infringe on our liberties. And that's when we're going to react to that. So I don't know. I, I think it's, it's a very yes. pivotal time uh, in, in the United States and in the world for, for those concepts of, of identification and religious liberty. And that's sort all of religion is politics. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, especially in this election in the United States, but I mean, even overseas, gosh, you know, the, I mean, from, from the attacks in Belgium 
down to the Syrian conflict. Um, I mean, we need smart people like you in places that are, you know, you're either deciding the policy or you're, you're in the ear of someone who's deciding whether or not to send more troops to an area because there's a, a conflict with ISIS or something um, like that. I would right? think so. I've had some conversations with some people today about, you know, <laughs> it would seem that especially now, uh, our decision makers and and politicians need not just economic advisors and healthcare advisors and advisors, but they need religion advisors, and not just the president for a while, not just President Obama, but a number of presidents for a while have had religious advisors um, in kind of a more of an interfaith capacity, which is great. I have absolutely nothing against that. Um, it's interesting, kind of the cabinet that was put together recently for Obama and his kind of um, religious advisors, but it's all from a confessional perspective. And, and right. Yeah. And so what they've not had that I think they desperately need, and I think it's pretty evident and policies that are uh, getting, you know, written and, and handed down and then, just the statements of politicians too, is they, they need someone that they need people that understand religion from an academic perspective as well. Um, and from a sociological perspective, and that's, that's what's lacking. Uh, and we've talked about this one before or on the show before, right? I mean, Sam, you've asked me a number of times, well, what would you, you know, how would you advise president Obama on this? And, um, so I have my opinion. So if anybody's listening and, agrees with me and is in a position to give me a job, then give me a job because I will advise you because I, I think that what I do matters um, to the general public, but to also our policy as well. Uh, and, and, you know, I also think it's not just on matters about religion, but also, but matters related to that as well. Um, and, you know, related to how rhetoric, you know, functions, how language works, uh, group formation, how people build and maintain and defend identities um, that is often just getting overlooked. I mean, you know, some social scientists are working on some of these type things and, and are doing some good work, but oftentimes it just seems like they're not thinking about this at all. And they're kind of, they have data, but their data is not informed by other things that would help them uh, better interpret the data or better, um, put the data to work for them. Right. So, um, yes. So that maybe that segues into our job discussion, right? <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So I, I work, gosh, I'm trying not to say so as well. Interesting. So, and like three things I can't say. Um, and, um, I've been really thinking hard here about the next, 10, 15, 20 years, uh, in, in my own little subspace of, of a career about how rapidly things are, are evolving and changing from where they were, you know, 50, 20, 10, five years ago. And if you're a 60 year old white male and you've had the same job for 30 years and you think everyone can go out with hard work and get a job that they're in for 30 years and have a white picket fence and a house in the suburbs and 2.5 kids and drive a Volvo and your wife drinks Chardonnay at 11 AM. Like that world doesn't exist anymore for lots of people. Um, and, and even then 
and and it, it will never exist again. And yes, you know, the stock market was up 7% in March, but that concept of this sort of middle class thing in the United States is gone. Um, you know, people who are coming into the job sector now out of college or grad school or high school or, or you know, whatever, aren't presented with the same opportunities that someone was, I would say, five, 10 years ago, um, especially after 2007 and 2008 with the uh, beginning of the, the great second Great Depression, I, I would say. And we're still reeling from that eight years later. And not only that, but we have this new new variable of mechanization and algorithmic thought. So what I do in the marketing world is going to be done by machine language and programming very quickly. I mean, it's it doesn't take a human brain to make a website or to make a social media campaign. And all of this is going to be automated. So, you, you know, you'll go to you know, roboticwebdesign.com and you'll put in what you want and it'll spit out a beautiful site. And you can almost kind of get there today with things like Wix and Squarespace and those, those things. Right. Um, yeah. So we, we, we don't, you don't need that craftsmanship of, of going into HTML code or CSS and, and making a beautiful website. I mean, you can, um, but that's not really need, uh, needed anymore. And even in Facebook, I mean, the idea of people being able to go into Facebook and create advertising, campaigns for $5 or $10, you know, a a church or, or, you know, small business who has, you know, no background in advertising, being able to go in and do that and reach millions of people for $10 is revolutionary. And all that, all that used to go through people like me, (laughs) right? So it's, it's a good thing that we're getting to the point where things are so democratized, where you can go in and for 50 bucks a month, have a very successful Facebook advertising campaign or $25 or $10. Um, and it just takes, you know, a few, few minutes a day and to sit down and think about it, maybe read a few blog posts and boom, there you go. Or, you know, go to Google and throw in, uh, you know, a hundred bucks in AdWords and you'll be pretty amazed what you can do. And all that used to channel through people like me or agencies. And, you know, if you trace that back to like the Don Drapers of the 1960s, you see the real craftsmanship because I, you know, I'm not a designer at that level. You know, and, and if Don Draper were to know me today, he would say, oh, you know, who's this guy? So all that to say, um, I've been really sort of intertwined with this idea that a lot of the jobs that even the few that are out there now, a lot of the jobs that we do, especially when I look at what my like interns do, um, you know, these are college kids and they're getting experience in marketing agency, but a lot of what they do is going to be automated very shortly. And it's going to be a lot cheaper than, you know, bringing on an intern and having to train them and go through the human resources stuff and pay the taxes and, you know, all that. Um, and, and I think about people like you, Thomas, who are in the Academy or, or my, you know, my wife, Mariana, who's a pastor. And that skill that you have, or those skills that you have because of your training and the skills that she has because of her training aren't necessarily as easily algorithmatized, I guess, or, you know, it's, it's harder to put into a box and sell to someone as a service. Um, you know, it's not like writing a book or, or doing journalism. I mean, journalism is going to be robotic in, in 10 years. I mean, you won't read anything on the web that's not written by a robot. And there'll, there'll be a few small, you know, artisanal 
type blocks and, and new services that are human generated. And those you'll have to pay for those. But, you know, the USA Today's will all be algorithmic writing and it's going to be tailored to you based on your Facebook likes. And we know that's coming. Um, so I would think in my head that you and Mariana and people that have deliberately trained in, in an, uh, an area that cannot be replicated by you know, machine learning or by algorithms or by, or by computers, you know, the, the, I'm thinking of a friend who's, who does massage therapy, you know, counseling and those types of things. Like she's, she's going to be okay. She's going to make it through the robot revolution here. But people like me who are just sitting in front of a computer and, you know, being code monkeys, we're, we're doomed as far as that goes. And we've got to pivot and figure out how to keep our human talents, um, you know, sort of at the forefront of what we're doing. So, when I talk to you and you're like, yeah, you know, I've sent off, you know, 82,000 resumes or CVs, it's it. I want to take this typewriter, this imaginary typewriter and throw it through the window, you know, because you're the first person that should get hired. Right. And we, we, we have these. Yeah. <laughs> but we have these conversations. So if you're an academic or if you're a pastor or if you're, you know, uh, building widgets at a factory. How, how do you get hired? <laughs> you know, like, do you, do you put yourself out there and say, hey, this is who I am? I don't, you know, screw it. You know, I'm going to curse on Twitter and I'm going to make all my Facebook right, stuff yeah. public. So, I mean, you know, I don't care. That's a great question. I mean, obviously I'm dealing with this. I know a lot of people uh, that are dealing with the same thing. And there are, there are a number of conversations kind of happening in the Academy too, particularly about this and particularly What's always great is seeing people that have that are tenured and you know have been professors for twenty or thirty years talking about what grad students should and shouldn't do with when it comes to the internet. Um, and on one hand, lies the disconnect that a lot of these people have from like the way the rest of the world works, but then you also realize, hey, these people are making hiring decisions. Um, so there's this huge movement that grad students should not blog. Uh, one, I think this is because a lot of people have a fairly fundamental misunderstanding of blogging in 2016. Um, and I think that blog has expanded as a category and is still used in a lot of circles derisively. Um, and so, I mean, syndicated journalists are like, oh, I read your blog. Like, um really a blog like you know uh, like I'm an expert writing about this thing it's not like I'm telling you you know about my latest vacation and it's like hey I went to see this and here's a couple pictures like you know but I think that's what people think it is I don't know um so they, I mean you think of the blogger as you know the guy with the throat beard and who who sits in his underwear all day and plays Halo and also you know writes a couple of blog posts when he sees something interesting on Twitter which is my life um, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, so there's that. And then there are, you know, obviously there are people that are, you know, graduate students that are blogging, doing kind of really highly specialized stuff, you know, blogging only about kind of academic stuff, but doing really interesting stuff. And then there are people like me who, you know, I guess technically I blog um, on my own site and also for marginalia um, because leave the little tiny corner of the site that, I kind of oversee there is the Marginalia Review of Books blog, uh, the MR blog. Uh, but that's fine. 
but I don't just write about like late antique Christianity, even though that's what my dissertation's on. In fact, I, in fact, I almost never write about that. You know, I write about things that are other things that I'm also interested in applying the skill sets, the knowledge that I have to these other things. So, you know, the modern American political landscape and, you know, things that are going on with Pope Francis and other things related to history and religion and how we conceive of these and the impact that they have on our lives and things like that. Um, and on the one hand, it has dramatically increased my brand, right? I think, I mean, I think we've talked about it on the show. I've had, you know, people come up to me regularly, like at the last uh, SBL uh, conference in November, the Society of Biblical Literature and American Academy of Religion conference. Uh, people came up to me, you know, a lot <laughs> that I'd never met. Like, hey, I read your stuff on Margin I really like it. And it, you know, it's fantastic. It's a little shocking to think like, oh, people are actually reading what I write, right? But there's there are other kind of opportunities that have come out of that, invitations I've gotten to appear on panels and to uh, you know, write chapters and edited volumes and things like that that have come out of my writing online. Um, so I, I am a proponent of that. I think it's great. I also am you know, trying to help people rethink how we conceive of scholarship. I think you know, we have a fairly conservative model when it comes to say like tenure and promotion decisions that, you know, if it's not in a, you know, printed paper journal that's published four times a year, you know, that has kind of this and, you know, all this stuff that it like can't be scholarship. Right. That cost a, yeah, it costs $120 a right, year to yeah. subscribe to um, only six people read. So, so there's, there's that on the one hand. Um, but there's also just the reality that there just aren't that many jobs out there. Right. I mean, 2007, 2008 hurt basically every sector of the economy um, and higher education got hit really hard and jobs that were posted got pulled. Uh, people that were going to retire stayed in because their personal retirement accounts got hit. Uh, and then when people did retire, uh, their lines weren't replaced because, you know, and this happens in every field, right? Somebody leaves and you divvy up the responsibilities between the remaining people and you've saved yourself, hey, 60, 70, 80 grand a year, you know, um, in some cases, right? Not that that's what starting professors are getting paid. We had a conversation about this on Twitter the other day. Um, but if you're thinking of like, hey, you get paid 40 grand a year and they're also covering part of your health insurance and social security and stuff, it's saving the company, right? The, the institution, a, a fair amount of money. We understand that. Um, so there, there, yeah, I mean, there's, um, it's the reality, right? I, when I advise my students, I advise them against graduate school and I make sure that I do everything I can to help them understand exactly what they're getting into and help them have as low of expectations as possible. So that then if they decide to go in, one of two things will happen. They will not feel like they were sold a false bill of goods, like a lot of us feel like. Um, and if they don't get a job, then they'll know that was a possibility. But if they happen to get a job, then they will be probably elated. You know, um, so it's all about managing expectations. Um, but I also don't, I think grad school, like I love grad, I have loved grad school. Uh, I think it is absolutely fantastic. Um, but I don't think everybody needs to go to grad school. I am a proponent against the inflation of degrees that we've seen. I fully recognize the necessity of a college education because it is 
whether it's a two-year vocational um, degree or a four-year degree or whatever it is, because we have this degree inflation. And, you know, I know what the numbers say as far as a graduate, you know, a college graduate is in the same place now that a high school graduate was 25 or 30 or 40 years ago. Um, But a lot more people are putting off getting jobs because they don't know what to do because they're not exactly, you know, there aren't great jobs. So they're just going to keep going to grad school. And, you know, for a lot of people, all you're doing is putting off the inevitable. And in some cases, honestly, making it harder on yourself. Right. And so people like me that are coming out with, you know, advanced degrees and fairly specialized humanities fields um, are often having, you know, either by necessity or by desire, right, wanting or needing to pivot to something else. Maybe they don't want to teach. And a lot of people go to grad school and don't want to end up being faculty. And so they decide they want to pivot to something else. Um, You're simultaneously under and overqualified. Right. You're underqualified because you have no experience doing this other thing that you're interested in doing, or most people don't. Some people do. And you're overqualified because you have a PhD. And so oftentimes you're going to be losing out to people that have like a bachelor's degree in communications, which is great. But, you know, you're losing out to a 22 year old with a bachelor's degree in communications because, you know, they're looking like, well, they don't have to pay them as much. And they're looking at you like, what? Like, yeah. what happened here? Like, why did you want to come do this job? Like, it doesn't matter what you say to them. Even if you say, like, I, this is really <laughs> right. what I want to do. And, you know. Um, Isn't that the worst thing when you sit down for an interview and they look at your CV and they say, I don't know if you've had this. I've had this because, you know, my background is crazy, right. but it makes sense in my head. And pe- <laughs> the people say, can you explain to me your career path? Well, it's, <laughs> and it's like, so it's an interesting- you know, screw you. And, yeah. and I should I should just take but my that's an interesting question because it, it gets out. to kind of the fu- some fundamental ways that society as a whole and entire industries have changed, right? Hardly ever anymore does somebody like go to school, graduate, get a job, and stay in that job for twenty or thirty years. But all they the sixty-five-year-old white guys who exactly. are hiring people exactly. and who are on the finance committees, they did, and they have. And, and they've got free time now because they have a, a freaking 401k and, and they've got retirement and they're okay. They're going to be fine. They're going to survive the apocalypse of the economy, but we're not, <laughs> you know, and, and I think it's more interesting you know, to be able to say, yeah, yeah go to my blog. When I'm being blog. hopeful, or, which is, you know, <laughs> admittedly yeah. not every day. Um, my hope is that we, we as a society uh, begin to realize relatively soon that no matter what tech and computers can do for us, there are a lot of things that they can't do for us. And that, so I I think it's super cheesy though. I see a lot of people post this all the time. Um, You know, it's like science can teach you how to clone a T-Rex and humanities can teach you why it's not a good idea. Well, I honestly, I think that's a little bit um, dismissive of like what I do as a humanities person um hopefully i can tell you more than why cloning a t-rex might not be a good idea or maybe i would decide cloning a t-rex is a good idea right but these are the conversations we can have right in the humanities uh, and talk about the kind of the some larger philosophical questions talk about the ethical questions um and talk about like how to ask the right questions uh but you know so but i'm hoping right so you're talking about journalism that i think you're right a lot of it's going to be written by bots and things like that and 
journalism is hurting as much as any other field is right now. Um, but in my opinion, it's right now that like good quality journalism is most necessary because what we see is, you know, everybody has like a quote unquote story up within five minutes of something breaking on Twitter. And that's fine. But I mean, if I need break, if I want breaking news, which I do often, I just go to Twitter. I don't need to read your story where you storified 15 different people's tweets. Yeah, so it's, it's like the, uh, right? the, I mean, that, the London Times just recently said that the, they're getting out of the, the breaking news uh, industry and, yeah. and people are kind of saying like, oh, well, that's where I think I think it's good. That's where I think the yeah, value kind of the is, right? And that's that's what we try to do at Marginalia. I mean, and we're not we're not breaking any news there. I mean, we are at least in on the blog section. We do often talk about newsworthy topics, um, but I think that's where our value is. And and hopefully, and I think people are, are realizing this and beginning to see this that there is immense value in analysis right. that you can't get from breaking right. news. Right. And this is what good quality journalism gives you. It gets you to ask a question that you hadn't asked before, or it gives you an answer you hadn't considered. Right. So, okay. Yeah. We all heard Donald Trump's speech. That's fine. We can all write about, man, wasn't that crazy? Yeah. Here's the 15 crazy things Donald Trump said in the last hour and a half. That's great. You know, anybody with an internet connection and access to Google can write that piece. Right. But what, what not just anybody can write is, um, the the ramifications or why what he said resonates with certain. But Thomas, that, that doesn't get the right? clicks. Or that doesn't of, get the advertising. You know, and 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 that's that that's well, that's the argument against yeah, it. Yeah, and and that's and money is power, right? And money rules, and it makes these decisions, and that's the problem. And and what it's going to take is it's going to take people that think like you know the London Times and other other organizations that say we want to offer something right. more, and we will we are going to make sure to do everything we can to pay our people well. It's going to mean that we get better quality stuff. And I think in the long run, it's going to make us a better institution, a better publication, whatever it is. Um, and we might not be setting records for profits, but we want to be in the business of making some money, but also adding. This is exactly else. the conversation I had with um, Mariana about, you know, her job search as a pastor. And I mean, I'm, between you know, between talking to you and, and and my own experiences and talking to her, I'm of the opinion that sometimes you just have to say screw it. I'm going to go the Amanda Palmer route, and I'm going I'm going to break free of the system and figure it out. But I'm going to do it my way. Um, and and this is not an option for anyone or everyone, of course. But you know, you you just get to that point where you realize unless I play the type of music that the record label wants me to play, or unless I make the kind of Facebook, you know, post that my company or my school or my church wants me to make, I'm not going to be able to keep employment if I ever do get employment. And is it worth that trade off? Right. right. You know, so I, I've done this, but, but I mean, you know, like, and as you, as you recognize fundamentally tied up in that are questions of privilege and yeah, power totally, totally. and positionality. Right. right? Um, what you can and can't do. Um, and if you have some kind of security, maybe it's a partner that has a full-time job, or maybe you do this, you do that, you have a certain amount of security and can do that, but a lot of right. people can't, right? And that's, and that's you know, we, we obviously, rec we think that's a problem. Uh, we want you to be interesting 
on the but you can't when you when you like i mean like like us you know i pay for our insurance and it's lots of money every month and especially now that we have a you know four month old we're we're paying the hospital bills and that's a lot of money (laughs) and not everyone can do this you know and mortgage is coming out tomorrow and i've you know i've got to pay this and i have to pay that and i have to pay that so every month i know i have to make this much money you know as a company to pay for these things and i have to make this much money personally to pay for this stuff and yeah i mean uh, there's a reason my my hair went gray in five years after kind of saying screw you to the to this yeah system. well so so okay so if we're thinking about this question that we kind of started with we're kind of circling back around to of kind of advice right what should you major in should you major in stem should you major in humanities um I'm of I, I, the answer is I don't know, and part of the same reason I you know I'm kind of glad we got the question we started with about like you know am I confessional uh, and kind of glad that people don't really know uh, because in that arena and in a lot of arenas I don't want to give you the answer like I want I want you know hopefully give you some tools to find out what the answer is or find out what might be the appropriate answer for yourself, um, but. So if we think about this, I think on one hand, like, I think you should get a humanities degree. I think, um, or even if you get a STEM degree, you should get a minor in some humanities field. I think it will make you a better thinker. I think it will make you a more interesting person. I think it will help you um, understand the application of what you do beyond just the very specific tiny thing that you do. I think it will let you ask insanely interesting questions. I think it will help you realize that you don't always have the answer. I think it will help you understand the reality of how systems work. But in all of that, you also have to recognize the reality of how systems work. And the reality of how our system works right now is that the vast majority of people that are in the places to make the decisions and to provide the money think that college should be job training. And I fundamentally disagree, but I can fundamentally disagree with that notion all day long and it's not going to change anything. So I recognize I was having a conversation with a student um, just the other day about, you know, thinking about maybe do I want to go to you know seminary? Um, do I want to stay in my STEM field and just get that kind of job? Like, what do I want to do? Um, and there are very real things you have to think about. Um, the reality is we all are going to have bills at some point that we're going to have to pay and figure out a way to pay them. Um, and, and I would say so the, the reality that. is that our society mainstream, you know, not, not your, your Tumblr community, but our, our mainstream, you, you know, American culture, if you will, doesn't value curiosity, imagination, inquisitiveness, or these things that having a liberal arts degree, especially a religion degree or religious studies degree will engender inside of you and you, you can't, you can't, yes. I mean, when I moved back to Columbia after Yale Divinity, I had no freaking idea what I was going to do. And I ended up being an eighth grade science teacher because I came back with a, a master's of art and religion with an emphasis in Dante and Assyrian archeology. span Like that's fantastic. <laughs> and I, I still read so much on, on both of those things and I still, you know, love to study them yeah. and they've changed my life so much for the better. And I'm not living on a farm in Mullins. You know, I'm not I'm not slitting pigs necks every day like I used to do. And I love 
I love my background. But when someone asks me, like, can you explain this to me? Or why did you go to divinity school? Or why do you have this background? Or why do you have all these chemistry and computer science courses when you're a religion major? It just infuriates me to no end. And I can't imagine being in your position. I really can't. I, 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 I try sometimes. Um, well, so, okay. So we know that some people get it, right? We see the CEOs of various companies that say like, hey, I have a humanities degree. I want people to have humanities. I don't want somebody. Yeah, I've heard of you know people that um, you know various stories, but like heard one guy who was in advertising, and he went to talk to an advertising class, and first thing he said was, "Well, I wouldn't hire exactly." Anybody. And that's what I tell. So okay. I, I speak at USC. I don't want somebody with an. That's exactly what I tell the right? marketing so, majors. I'm like, you need to go pick up a minor in something because I'm not going to hire you with a marketing major because you, you're going to come in and think you know everything, but you're also not going not going to be interesting. And I I want to talk about Moby Dick, or I want to talk about you know, this other thing. And I want you to be inquisitive and I want you to have to figure things out. And, and the other thing is you have to learn how to talk to other people. Exactly. Right. And this is something that, that now I will say this, a lot of academics, humanities academics don't have any idea how to do this. They don't have, I mean, there are a lot of people in religion that don't have any idea how to talk to other people that study religion. If they don't study the same part of the world and the same languages in the same time period. Right. So there are problems with that. Um, but Yes, it will. It will help you. I mean, how can you be in marketing and not have some interest and understanding in the other things that people are interested in, like what your clients are going to be interested in and the things you're going to have to be doing for them? Right. Because you need to know like, oh, I know you're like, this is your thing. Have you also seen this or have you thought about that and new and kind of interesting um unique ways to think about it that's what you can but that's what you our, can bring. our society so, does not value that i mean our society did value that when it was rockefeller and carnegie and and westinghouse and those those sort of well, titans of industry that had liberal it, arts right? degrees certain, yes but to a certain degree and for only a certain segment of society the, the wealthier i mean the leisure class right. right right and so yeah i don't know so okay so I, I think it has been better, but I, you know, I'm always cautious of any time we try to, and I'm not saying you're trying to do this, but um, you know, try to harken back to some golden age that probably never existed. Oh no, no, no! I'm not um, saying that. I'm not saying that. I'm saying right. you know, yeah, yeah. there was a time when, if you're educated and you were the CEO of a company or you were a titan of industry, that you had a liberal arts background and you understood. Oh, it's good to know Livy, and it's good to be able to read that in Latin. Um, you know, I, I enjoy Suetonius. You know, like those types of things that that trickle down, if you will. So when, you know, Mr. Carnegie sees that you're a young whippersnapper who, you know, has read the Iliad and, and can quote verses, he, he says, Oh, well, I'm going to, you know, take you by the bootstraps and you know, you're, you're in the big room now. Um, I, I'm just saying like, that's not a golden age by any means. Right. For anyone. Um, but compared to what our society values in terms of that type of learning, like you said, college for the most part, is job training now. You know, you hear Bernie Sanders saying, we need collages for everyone, or colleges. For, have you seen that? Where he's like, no, no, I'll say collages. <laughs> no, he's holding up like a, <laughs> a collage. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, I love that. Uh, so, you know, when, when Bernie is saying, oh, college for everyone, and Hillary is saying, yeah, that sounds great. Let's let's look into that. No, <laughs> you know, and and not not because it shouldn't be available to everyone, but because we're furthering that idea that, education is job training and uh, sure 
I mean, there's, there's a component of that. And I've told my eight-year-old, you know, and she, her mom's like, oh, well, you know, you need to go to Wofford and major in biology. And I'm like, you know, go be a plumber. Um, the, you know, people are always going to have toilets that are broken and robots aren't going to be able to fix toilets for the next few decades. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> YouTube. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So all that to say, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not trying to harken back, but I'm also trying to say that when you look at the idiocracy of things like the Donald Trump movement and let's make America great again and how brilliant of a campaign slogan that is, because it, it harkens absolutely brilliant to that, right? It, yes. it makes people think, and it's completely oh, yeah. open and ambiguous and ripe for you to project whatever understanding you have about what America used to be like and what you think it should be onto. Yeah. It is absolutely and what his campaign slogan. is. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and his campaign has no nucleus. You know, it's just it's just like a cell, and there's like some mitochondria in there, but there's no nucleus of the cell, so you don't know what to do with it. You know, but it's a virus, and it keeps replicating itself, and you're able to put your own meaning on top of that. Um, you know, so I think I, I think in a lot of ways, it's there are ruts that people fall into, hiring managers and things like that, that are hard for them to get out of, right? So I know uh, plenty of people in management who, have, you know, will say. You know, you know, thinking about hiring undergraduates, I don't care what degree you have, as long as you have a degree, and I can teach you to do whatever you need to do, right? So there's that, and that, that's the reality in, in a lot of jobs. Um, and so then what becomes important are the skills that you develop, right? Say like, and this is kind of cliche, but critical thinking skills, how to read something closely, you know, how to understand the nuances of language, um, and how to write, you know, clear memos or reports or, you know, how to have just a normal conversation with other people, uh, things like that, that matter much more than, you know, can you, do you have all these Excel formulas memorized or something like that? I mean, you know, and that's the thing I try to do in my classrooms is get beyond what in Wikipedia, because if you can Wikipedia, it shouldn't be in my classroom, you know, and then we'll move on and we'll actually do something that hopefully is worth your time you know, being in my, in my classroom. Um, so I think a lot of hiring men, you know, a lot of people in business know this, uh, but I think you just fall into ruts and, you know, you constantly say, you know, we're competing with China and, you know, the president constantly says that we need more STEM. And I do think we do that. I do think we do uh, need more people in STEM fields, but I, I'm not convinced at all that we're going to win any kind of race against China or India or any other country just by simply producing more STEM majors. Right. 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 I mean, they're, and, and, yes, I, right. We, we are producing fantastic, amazing things in this country. We have some amazing companies and a lot of other countries have amazing companies too. Um, but <laughs> okay, no, my point is we're not going to, <laughs> we're not going to beat other people at their game of, you know, kind of just a strict STEM thing. I don't. I just don't think we're going to. Well, and, and maybe that's not. The, and that's not the game that you know. If we consider ourselves a, a, you know, one of the leaders of the world, if you will, or one of the. I mean that that sort of American right. privileged idea that we're at the center of the world. You know, right? Maybe that's not the game we, we need to be playing. Like we're never going to make cars again. Not in any right? kind so of Detroit. In any kind of be significant large scale way. No, I don't think so. Right. Yeah, we got Tesla, and that's awesome. You know, and that's going to transform things. We have Google doing the automatic car, whatever Apple's doing. And that's, 
you know, that thought leadership. Right. Right. And then, you know, there is a holdover from that, you know, quote, good old days. It's that that the United States is a place that shouldn't that should be a place where great ideas Right. And the way we do that is not by siloing people into, you know, their really super specific tracks. I don't think, I think it's by, it's by bringing people together. But that's what people want now. And, you know, you have this expertise, I have that one, but I also understand how your field works and I understand this other thing. And together we can come up with amazing things. All right. So I've got to run and go get the power cord because my laptop is dying and I, I didn't remember to charge it up before. Um, but while I do that, when I was teaching middle school, I, I had parents who were very professional and I was teaching at, at independent schools, uh, when I'm speaking of this and the parents were very insistent that the kid learned this in this physical science class, because they were going to go on to med school and they were going to become doctors. And, you know, we've got this lined up and this is what this kid's going to do. And I felt so sorry for those kids. Yeah. You know, because I, I went to college with an idea of what I was going to do. And then, you know, like I said, I, I had to take a religion class and I grew up very conservative. And I thought, well, OK, whatever, I'll go take this class. And I took it. And, and changed after every- the first day, I, I ran to the registrar. Yeah. Like, like you know, Mary <laughs> running from the tomb. And I, I, I ran to the registrar and changed my major. And my parents were pissed. But it changed my life and it was a great thing. And I'm so glad that, you know, the spirit tapped me on the shoulder that day. And and then you you look now and you realize that your former students that went to med school are making three times what you make. (laughs) Shut up. Keep talking. I'll be right back. No, I mean, I think that's, um, I don't know. There are tough, tough decisions. Um, I do not want to, I will try not to be in a position to tell anyone what they should do. But I think there is immense value in humanities degrees and in STEM degrees. And, and frankly, I would like to see us do interdisciplinary work and see you know more programs that are designed. You know, it's common, for instance, we have a um, you can get a major, a what's like a religion classics major that's not exactly majoring in religion or classics and it's not exactly double majoring in both of them but it's religion classics religion and classics and that's great and we go hand in hand together quite well um but you know it'd be interesting to think about other things that we could do um other programs that we could join together that would kind of help people really thinking about um these larger questions um and you know i think prepare them well for the world that they're going to enter so, uh, I'll stop talking there. We've had a local VoIP failure. And so I'm not exactly sure what happened. 